Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. This is the third episode of Extracts from our February the 6th live show at the Leicester Square Theatre. Now, Liars Lee presents The Great Big O by Jacqueline Downs, performed by Libby Edwards. This and more can be found at liarsleague.com. Writers write, actors act, and everyone wins. The Great Big O by Jacqueline Downs. When Karen Ward's son left for school at 9.37 this morning, she had already decided that by tea time, he would be dead. In the hours in between, she bought fish fingers, the expensive brand, and potatoes to make chips from scratch, because he liked hers better than the frozen, crinkly ones you could buy at the supermarket. Then she climbed four flights of stairs to get to their flat. And she sat on the balcony amongst the pigeon shit, drinking milky tea and wishing she'd nailed up the wire mesh like she'd always threatened to. Now, as it gets close to five and the fish fingers are tanning under the grill, she watches her boy as he lies in front of the TV, as he does every day when he comes home from school, alone, his elbows propping him up, trying to keep his head upright, his mouth in a great big O. Karen doesn't know exactly what it is he's watching, but she can't help herself thinking, I hope it's not a serial, because he's never going to find out how it ends. Philip doesn't notice his mum staring at him, but she is, and her eyes flutter over the bruise on his arm, returning to it like a bad habit. She doesn't remember if it was her who did it, as Philip tried yet again to run around the flying furniture or if it had been the work of his dad. So many bruises on Philip and on Karen that she just loses track of how they came to be. As Philip watches the story, his eyes transfixed on the screen, the, like the light is pulling his eyes towards it, sucking them into it, his mouth in that entranced O. Karen thinks about how his own story began, when she pushed him out of her. His mouth had been in an O then, far too early, and they'd had to take him away from her, straight away from her, before she'd even had a chance to see him. They'd stuck a tube down his tiny throat, and they'd sucked her insides out of him, all blood red and viscous, making him even smaller. By the time she got him back, all cleaned up and empty inside, it was like he didn't know who she was, didn't know that he'd come from her. Karen thinks that his story might have never begun. She didn't even know if she could have him. The doctors didn't seem sure, didn't know exactly what her pills might do to a baby. But she wanted one so much, wanted to give her husband something to love her for, that it didn't matter. And when Philip came out a perfect thing as she had ever had in her life, she couldn't even cry. Karen thinks that Philip looks so serious now watching the telly. She wants him to laugh, but he doesn't. His mouth stays in that O shape. The same kind of O shape it had when she left him at the nursery for the first time. Like he couldn't quite believe she'd done it, but he was relieved nonetheless. Even then, it was like he knew that to be away from her would be good and bad. The life and the death of him. 
He had watched her back away with that O oh on his face and then busied himself with the paint box. She watched him for a while then too, and he didn't know it. <coughs> he was lost to those colours, lost to the world they showed him. He couldn't wait to get to proper school. It was as though he had been opened up and needed to be filled in. As though his outline had been drawn and he was waiting for the colour to be applied. It seems that his mum and dad went over the edges. He could read already, of course, by the time he got to what everyone called big school. If by big they meant a hundred tiny humans making their bewildered way into learning. He was so advanced. He had been taught well, with kindness, mostly. Karen's childhood visiting his, only now with pills, so it didn't overstay its welcome. She used to read to him because it was something that was just theirs, something from her own childhood that she could give him, something, the only thing, that was good and right. She remembers reading great expectations to him. The little boy was called Philip, like him. He was too young to understand it, Philip Pirrip. But he loved it when anyone in the book called him Pip. And so that's what she used to call him, Pip, Pip. Pip. Barry, his dad, her husband, the man of the house, did his bit educating Philip at home. Karen remembers how he would knock Philip on the side of the head if he got things wrong. She can still hear Philip's mantra of Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, whack, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the forgotten Wednesday and the crack in the face. Philip's mouth in an O of pain and surprise, replaced too quickly by expectation and acceptance. Thinking of that, and so many other things, Karen wonders, what have they taught him, really? As he lies there now, oblivious to anything but what's in front of him, she notices for what must be the millionth time the way his legs bend up from the knees and cross at the ankles, upright in the air. The only part of him he will let stand up for itself. His head has started to drop a little, but his eyes still hold the gaze of the TV, and his mouth still lives in that urn. What are you watching? she asks. Just some programme, he replies, seeing her for the first time. As he does so, he gives her a smile, and his mouth is a slash of crooked, white and fleshy lips. It lasts a second before it's back in the O. He is so wrapped up in the telly, she can understand why. But it means he doesn't see her open the door onto the tiny balcony, just enough room for a clothes horse and the little bike he's quickly outgrown. A mug of milky tea gone cold and silvery. It means he doesn't see her come up behind him and pull him up with a strength she doesn't even know she has. What are you doing? he asks. The panic rising too easily in his voice. What have I done? That he assumes he has done anything kills her, and she is now surer than ever that she has to kill him. When she tries to bend him backwards over the balcony, she notices how tall he's got, how skinny he is, the hole in his school jumper. She sees fresh bruises like squashed blueberries on his neck and arms. She tries to explain to him, tries to make him see that this world isn't like the stories he watches on telly. It's a world where he gets bruises she is tired of counting. 
A world where he can't bring anyone home from school. A world of flying, fractured furniture and uncertainty. She doesn't want to be in it. And she doesn't want him in it without her. And your dad doesn't know how to make chips, she hears herself saying. He doesn't answer because his mouth is frozen in that O. That he doesn't scream or fight back hard enough kills her again. They are there for what seems like hours. But when she loosens her grip and lets go of her son, she notices the same program is still on the telly. But he doesn't go back to watching it. Instead, he runs out, not even stopping to put his shoes on. The Lions League live show happens at 7.30 on the second Tuesday of each month downstairs at the Phoenix, which is near Oxford Circus Tube. It costs £5 on the door. Writers write, actors read, audience listens, everybody wins. Here's some more of What Do You Think Of It So Far from Drunken Chorus, which we've been splitting up and sticking into the episodes in various different places. This is one of those places. And here it is. So the guy on this side uh, decides something needs to be done, you know. Something really needs to be done to get things moving now, to get, to get everybody really enjoying it, okay? So he racks his brains. He thinks, he really thinks, and then it hits him. Hits him like a bullet in the stomach. A dance. You know, a big jazzy toe-tapping number. Really get people into it, you know, get people dancing in the aisles, that kind of thing. So he signals to the band over at the side of the auditorium and they begin to play. The two men move over into the centre of the stage and embrace. It's a very loving embrace, a very passionate embrace. Nothing sexual, more of a kind of brotherly love. A nervous and desperate they begin to dance. Jokes about the fall of human decency. 
Jack's about some other things. Jack's about something else. Dance is dreadful. <laughs> and the choreography is really absurd. <laughs> the footwork is, you know, obscene at times. <laughs> you know, I mean, what were they thinking? There's a guy down at the front here just thinking to himself, what was that on about? So the guy on this side realises that things are getting pretty desperate, you know? I mean, no one's really enjoying this, are they? You know, I mean, something's got to be done. Something's got to be done to get people enjoying it, you know, to get the audience on side. I mean, this is their careers. I mean, this is their careers on the line, you know? So something's got to be done, you know? The guy on this side decides to take a risk, and he does this by beginning to tell this long, anecdotal, drawn-out kind of joke. And it's a joke that he knows when he tells a punchline. Everybody in the room's gonna laugh. Everyone's gonna love it. Everyone's gonna think it's brilliant, you know? And then when everyone's walking out at the end, they'll be saying to their friends, I you know, got off to a bit of a slow start. I didn't really get that dance thing. I didn't really understand what that was all about. But, 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 but they'll be saying, you know, when they tell that joke, that epic gag, the timing was perfect. It was, it was brilliant. The physicality, everything, every single bit about that joke was brilliant. I'd, I'd pay good money to see them any time. You know, I'd go back again and again and again, and I'd want to stand up at the end of the joke, encore, encore, encore. And it begins by telling you that it's a joke about two polar bears, two great snow white polar bears and he tells you how they were very happy together very safe very much in love floating around on their big piece of ice and he tells you how one day this piece of ice begins to melt in the hot sun and the two great polar bears just slip off into the sea. And he describes this melting process in great detail. He describes the uh, texture of the water, the temperature of the ice. He describes the color of the water against the ice in comparison with the white fur of the great bears. And he describes the sound of the ice trickling into the water as it melts. And he describes the sound of the bears thrashing about on the surface of the water as they try to stay afloat for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. And he describes the expressions on the faces of the bears as they slowly sink on the surface, exhausted from the struggle to stay afloat. And he describes the sound of bubbles on the water. As the great bears slowly sink below the surface. 
and he describes their eyes. Shrabs has big, dark eyes. How the lights just seem to flick out. One by one by one. And he describes the darkness. And he describes the darkness. He describes the darkness. It's at this point in the joke that he realizes he can't remember the punchline. <laughs> Today we're thanking some of the core Stand Up Tragedy team. So thanks to the ringer of the bell and stage manager Zoe Prosser. She tolls the bell at you. It doesn't toll for her. And thanks to our slightly less bad cop, Liz Bailey, who is the other half of our stage managing team. She, who from our friendship's womb, may be untimely ripped. I hope she will remain here tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And finally, thanks to Anton Frank, who does our PR and 90% of all of our social media nonsense. I do the other 10%. He's also gonna be performing later in the run. Find his Rocker Pops music on Facebook and on SoundCloud. Just search for Anton Frank. Starting in March, we'll be using this segment to thank contributors to our Indiegogo campaign. It's one of the fantastic perks you can get for contributing. This is a campaign that I've set up partly so I can pay the performers that you've been listening to. Stand Up Tragedy is an independent show. With audiences like we had on the 6th of February, we'll break even for sure. But I want to pay the performers for their work. With your contributions, that will be possible. If you want to contribute in a different way, you might want to buy some of our ridiculously overpriced print-on-demand merchandise. We have hoodies, t-shirts, bags, and even, weirdly, underwear, like thongs and stuff. And the weirdest thing, probably, is the dog coat. Why not? You know, we could have it. Why not have it? You don't have to buy it. We've given you the opportunity. It's all about choice, isn't it? It's all about choice. That's what we're giving you. So you can check out all of that and so much more on www.standuptragedy.co.uk. And to begin with, he doesn't realise what's happened. He hears a sound, you know, but he doesn't really feel it until he looks down and he sees all this blood gushing out and he lets out this terrible cry. It's, ah! In the meantime, the guy at this side has dived to the ground, okay, and he's checking himself all over to make sure that he hasn't been hit by a bullet too. He realises it's fine. He's got away unscathed. So he crawls down from the front of the stage, walks across the feet of the audience, through the door up the stairs, through the foyer, and out into the cold, dark night. Meanwhile, the guy on this side has fallen to the ground. And he's clutching his wound to try and stop the blood from escaping. You know, he's holding it really tight. And he looks across at the empty space behind the other microphone. And he feels a cold draft down one side of him. And then he looks at the audience. He realises that everyone's waiting. He doesn't know what to do. He raises a hand to the band at the side of the auditorium and they begin to play and nervous and desperate he just begins to sing 
And as he lays there, singing and bleeding, he suddenly has this, this thought, and this might actually be the best song he's ever sung. He starts to think of it as like his uh, swan song, you know? Start to think about what people might say at his funeral. Or what might, what might be written on his gravestone. He starts to think about all that blood he must have lost by now. And it's a lot of blood, you know. And the guy in the down at the front of you just kind of thinking to himself, <laughs> isn't somebody going to get an ambulance? You know, I mean, isn't somebody going to get an ambulance?
run through for us performing what do you think of it so far. Uh, if you look for this at drunkenchorus.co.uk, you will be satisfied. Come along to our next live show. It's at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 5th of March. We've got some fantastic acts. We've got Helen Arney. We've got Jack Gobsmob playing some music. We've got a great story. We've got some more. I mean, just it's just good stuff. So just come along. It's going to be good. It's going to be a really eclectic mix of tragic acts. Tickets are available. Use the promo code TRAGIC to get them for a little cheaper. Come along. It'd be great to see you.